This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Mental workers, and welcome back to the Mental Work Podcast for Early Career Psychologists. Today, I am very excited as always because I have a guest who is going to share very exciting and awesome things with you. Today, we are going to be talking about working with culturally and linguistically diverse clients. Did you know that 30% of people in Australia have a parent born overseas or were born overseas themselves? So, it is absolutely imperative and essential that we know how to work with these culturally linguistic people because we're going to encounter them in our practice. Also, they're just humans who are also worthy of our respect and understanding. Today with me, I have Niraja Shankar. She's a clinical psychology trainee and a PhD candidate. She's been on the podcast before. And hello, Niraja. Hi, Bronwyn. Thank you for having me on again. So one thing we're talking about off air is that your cultural background is very important to your identity. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Because that really sets the scene for what we're going to talk about later. Sure. Um, so I am a proud Indian um, woman, a proud woman of colour. Um, I moved to Australia in 2008. Um, my move here was a little bit different to other migrants in that I lived in Egypt for a few years before moving here because of my dad's job. Um, but being Indian and being an Indian Australian is a really important part of my identity. Yeah. So tell us a bit about when you came to Australia, what was that like for you? Look, it was really, really interesting um, because, as I said, from India, I moved to Egypt and yeah. that was a very different kind of environment to grow up in um, in comparison to Australia um, because in Egypt, I was surrounded by expat kids and everyone had kind of moved all over the world, um, whereas when I moved to Australia, it was people who were from Australia, you know, they were born and raised here. And so I actually found it was quite interesting that coming in and fitting into Australia was actually a little bit more challenging than it was when I was in Egypt. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I was fortunate in that I didn't get bullied, but um, my younger brother did get bullied because of his race as well when we were settling in here. As welcoming as it was, I think it came with its own challenges as well. Yeah, when you said fortunately beforehand, I was like, oh, that makes it sound like it's a common occurrence. So is it to be expected that many people who are migrants to Australia, they actually do encounter this racial bullying? Absolutely. And, you know, we are, I think, much more multicultural now. But I would say that while our racism was maybe a little bit more explicit in the past, um, it's still very much there. And there's still definitely a bit of that implicit racism happening without realizing. Hmm, okay. So you're growing up kind of in this environment where you're aware of covert racism and sometimes explicit racism as well. I can't imagine what that is like for a young woman growing up. I mean, I think I very quickly realized my differences and I don't know whether it was a function of that or something else, but most of my friends growing up in high school were actually of migrant backgrounds themselves. Um, some of them were born in Australia, but their parents were born overseas. But I would say the vast majority of my close high school friends were all migrants themselves, first or second generation. Yeah, I don't know what happened, what the function of that was, but reflecting on it now, that's, yeah, that comes up for me. 
I guess I'm interested to know just a bit more about the challenges and maybe even positives of having your cultural identity growing up. I think the challenges were for sure straddling two different cultures and two different identities, which as a younger person can be really hard to do because when you're at home, your parents are trying to instill this one ethnic identity in you, you know, bringing the traditions, the customs, the culture that they knew that they knew growing up. Um, While outside of home, you're trying to fit into this new culture, um, this thing that maybe your parents don't know as much about and it's a bit of an unknown to them. Um, So in that sense, it's quite challenging to straddle those two worlds and balance it. And something that I found growing up and I think was pretty common in my friendship group as well is growing up, we were probably more rejecting our cultural identity because as children, you know, in the media, everyone around us, you see the Australian population. So we all wanted to be like that. We all wanted to feel like we fit in, that we weren't different, um, that we were normal. um, And I say that with air quotations. (laughs) But as we've grown up, um, something I've noticed is that a lot of us actually embrace that cultural background more. We really embrace that difference a lot more. And I don't know whether that is also a function of as the years have gone, Australia has become a really multicultural society. So people are more aware and want to know about that cultural identity more and give you the space to really share that as well. Mm. It just strikes me as an adolescent, when I think of these, the development of an adolescent, I've been taught that the key psychosocial stage is for adolescents to find their identity and separate from their parents. And I guess even just now reflecting on what you shared, I'm like, oh, wow, that's such a white Western concept, because it sounds like from what you're sharing is that there are these additional dimensions for people who are cold culturally and linguistically diverse in, I guess, straddling these two worlds. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I I know we're going to talk about my research a little bit further, but I'm actually doing some research around migration and parenting at the moment. And a lot of the trends are coming up that parents, instead of kind of promoting that psychological independence, they sort of promote psychological interdependence, which is, you know, they want you to have that autonomy and that independence, um, which is a very, I guess, Australian kind of thing. Um, But at the same time, they do want that connection with family and for that identity to be related to the family and the culture and that sort of thing as well. So really juggling both there. That's really fascinating. And yes, it does bring us to your research, which I'm super interested in. As therapists, we can bring all sorts of assumptions into the room. Maybe you can take us through some of those assumptions that might happen that early career therapists can bring into the room about their cold clients. Absolutely. So I think one of something I've personally experienced um, in my network is that sometimes when we sound Australian, you know, our accent is Australian. We sound like we're from Australia, which we are. Therapists can make this assumption that the way we think about our families and our identity when it comes to our ethnicity is very similar to more Caucasian populations as well. Um, So people in my network, you know, from various cities who don't really have anything to do with each other, um, have 
experienced therapy where they've gone, they've spoken about challenges they've had with their parents, their families, and the therapist has come back to them and said, well, why don't you just move out? And that felt quite dismissive and um, as if that therapist wasn't able to understand where they were coming from because that isn't a realistic answer for people from these backgrounds, from cold communities as well. So it kind of feels minimizing in that way. Um, but that's not to say that everyone is the same. You know, there might be other people who that would have been an appropriate suggestion for. Um, but I guess working with Cal communities, it just takes a little bit more time to understand how that background um, and that culture influences the person. Mm, I really like what you said there that people might differ and it's really important I feel to point out that people from cold backgrounds are not a homogenous kind of entity and what we're saying here today isn't going to be like oh people from cold backgrounds are generally this it's like you're all individuals but the important thing that I heard there was that maybe as psychologists if we're from a Caucasian background and we're in with a client from a cold background we might not be as attuned to I guess providing them with things that is actually relevant to them. And we might be drawing on our own biases and assumptions that have worked for other clients, but maybe not tuning into the client in front of us. Absolutely. Yeah. And it can go in the reverse as well, where maybe we can also make assumptions where we think that the family has more of an impact um, or are more protective or that kind of thing, where maybe that might not be true at all. So it can work both ways. But I think as a client as well, I think clients also walk in with their own assumptions and biases. And now I speak of an experience from when I was the therapist and I had a young person who was of a cold background who came to therapy with me. And she actually, I was just a stand-in therapist for her whilst her usual therapist was um, on extended leave. And her usual therapist is of Caucasian background. And this Example comes to mind because, you know, this young person walks in, we have this hour-long session um, and she's telling me all about her family background and how her relationship with her parents have impacted her development and her identity and how she's kind of torn between this identity of I want to do this for myself and I'm individual, but I also want to make my parents proud and I need to do this for them as well and how she's torn between that. And the moment that it really struck out to me was at the end of the session, she just looks at me and goes, huh, I have never said this to my regular therapist before, but I just saw you and I thought you would understand. You know, clients sort of come in with their own assumptions as well. That's so interesting though. Did you feel like you had an understanding like when she said that? I absolutely did. Yeah. Um, when she was talking about the way her parental dynamics are playing yeah. out, the dynamics are pa- playing out, the way she was talking about straddling two worlds of her ethnic identity as well as her Australian identity and being in school here. Um, I definitely did really relate to that. But I also found it very un- interesting that she wasn't able to say that to her regular therapist not to say that she wouldn't have I think it would have probably just taken a little bit more time yeah but I do wonder whether there was a cultural aspect to that do you believe there was I think so yeah when when you look at me you can tell uh, that I am from a cultural background and so I think it is easier people maybe feel more comfortable there is that sense of familiarity of oh yeah okay she looks like she would 
also be from that type of background and I can share this in that way. I mean, to me, when I hear that, I think it speaks to the need for more cold psychologists as well, because I wonder if this dynamic was playing out that perhaps the person, the client felt like, okay, she's going to get it. I don't actually have to work so hard to have the psychologist really understand and empathize and get my experience. Yeah. And you know what, Bronwyn, I will say in that moment when she said that, where she just looked at me and she went, oh, I've never said this to my therapist before, but I just felt like you would understand, really validated exactly why I came into this industry to begin with. Because I had that same experience growing up where, you know, there weren't enough people of colour in the therapy field, therapists who are of people of colour. And hearing that was sort of like, yeah, this is why I'm doing it. That's amazing. I just got like shivers because it's so damn important and we do not have enough cold psychologists. It's been a traditionally very Western white thing. And so it is so important to have that. Um, And this is a really timely example. So I think this brings us well to your research because I wonder if you got into your research area because um, you were motivated to kind of come into this industry and this is a really relevant topic. Maybe take us through what the motivations were for having this line of research. Sure. So um, I'm not sure whether I've given a background of what my research is. So Maybe I might give that first. But my PhD currently is looking at the impact of migration on parenting and how that might impact parent and child mental health. Um, and the reason why I went into this research, you know, when I started my master's, I hadn't started my PhD, but I was always very interested in doing my PhD. And we were kind of looking at the different research supervisors available at my university. And the one thing I was very clear about was I wanted my research to do with culture. Right. I don't I didn't mind what it was, um, you know, I didn't mind what it, whether it was the impact of culture on PTSD or whatever that might be, but I was very particular that it had to be to do with culture or cultural factors in some way. Um, and that was because, you know, you read all of this research, you look at all of these therapy modalities and stuff, and you quickly realise that a lot of our research is done in the more Western countries like the US, UK, Australia being the big ones, Canada being another big one. And a lot of that is to do with Caucasian populations. Um, Now, the thing that really spurred me further to take on this PhD was I was just doing my initial research for my current paper that I'm writing. And I read a line, I can't remember what paper this was in, but I read a line where the limitation of the randomized control trial was they actually said we excluded participants from ethnic minorities because we thought that would have been a confounding variable. So future research should be done on ethnic minority population to see how this works with them. And that really gave me that fire to keep going because it was sort of like, wow, this is just clearly said that they have excluded ethnic minorities from the paper. That's incredible. It's like a whole dimension that is being ignored. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking, I guess, how we're taught CBT, for instance, at university, we've got thoughts, feelings, behavior. And then it's kind of like in the background, you can wipe a one-liner about culture. And it's like, oh yeah, don't forget culture. Okay. We've done it. We've included everything. But it sounds like from what you've seen from the research is that this culture is maybe not being taken into account as much as it certainly could be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why I'm kind of really interested and passionate about this area, you know, wanting to grow um, our understanding of child communities and really include that in research as well. Uh, and, you know, there is research out there, but it's definitely not to the same volume as research with other populations. I remember seeing a research article, gosh, this would have been like 10, 15 years ago, but it was all about how psychology research is conducted on weird populations. I'm sure you've probably seen that. It's Western industrialized something, something, something. And yes, it was mostly focused on that and how the vast majority of psychology experiments and studies have been conducted. So of course, it is really imperative to see, I guess, how even our basic psychological concepts hold up in different communities, but also exploring the experiences of people with cold backgrounds. Absolutely. And, you know, we started this podcast with a statistic on the migrant population in Australia alone. And it is so important to make sure that our understanding and our therapy, you know, the therapies that we use are evidence-based with these populations as well. Because at the moment, I think a lot of the times, um, and I'm speaking from a more parenting behavioral intervention side of things because that's what my research focuses on so that's what my knowledge is in um, but a lot of the times we are retrofitting these interventions onto cowled communities which can work sometimes cannot work sometimes but we don't even know what the underlying principle principles are at the moment that's so bad when you think about it because we literally have an ethical obligation to ensure that every one of our clients has the fullest potential for recovery and achieving their therapy goals. So if we're retro, like actively fitting these therapies onto them, ah, it just blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one area that has taken a long time to happen but I think is happening really well is research with Indigenous populations where we're very particular that the Indigenous population, sorry, the research is not done about Indigenous populations, but rather it's done with Indigenous populations. And I think that is a very important distinction because it is really important for these communities to be able to have a voice and to be able to share what is important to them, what needs to be focused on for them. Um, and I don't think we're at the same place with CALD communities just yet. I think we still have research that's happening about them. There is research happening with, but I think there isn't that kind of strong focus on that area. So I think we also, as researchers, have some way to go to make sure that kind of principle is applied to CALD communities as well. Absolutely. So there's definitely room for growth in this area. You mentioned that you're doing a systematic review. I can't remember the exact, exact thing that you're examining, but tell us about it. Tell us about the trends, what you're finding, what you're seeing. Sure. So my systematic review is to really, you know, as I go into this PhD, get an understanding of what our understanding on migration and parenting is so far. Excellent. So that's what it's looking like. Uh, sorry, that's what it's looking at. Mm. And um, so how I'm categorizing it is I'm trying to understand, based on the papers I've read, what are cultural factors that parents are maintaining, what are cultural factors that they're discarding as they migrate, and what are cultural factors that they're adopting from their new country or new culture that they're living in. So interestingly, you know, I think my systematic review has included 23 studies off the top of my head 18 of those are based in the United States and if you would believe Bronwyn not one is in Australia I, I 
I wish it was different. It's like I believe it, but I wish that were not the case. There are obviously very strong criteria that I've put in place, and this is not to say that we don't do any research in Australia, but from I think I'm focusing on 2010 to 2022 and with the other criteria that I've put in place, we didn't pick up one one paper that's been Damn. conducted in Australia. Yeah, and for listeners as well who are not familiar with systematic reviews, 23 studies is actually quite a lot for a systematic review to examine because you've got very strict criteria, you rule studies out at every level you go through, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just to give you some raw figures on that, you know, yeah. I started with 12,000 papers oh my that goodness. I had to screen and I whittled it down to 23. So it has been a mammoth task. Um, but yes, like you said, 23 is actually to the bigger side of a systematic review. Yeah. So tell us what kind of stuff you're seeing. What are the trends? One of the findings that I'm seeing is that parents are actually blending their cultures where they're maintaining aspects of the culture that they know, that they've come from, that they've been raised with, whilst also adopting aspects of the culture that they're moving into. Um, So there is that blend happening. Interestingly, though, some of the parents are actually going even more traditional um, in the cultural factors that they maintain than population in their native country. Some hypotheses for this is that, you know, maybe because they have to really work hard to um, build that ethnic identity, they kind of hold on to it much stronger. Um, But another point is also that they move, you know, 10 years ago or however long it is that they've moved since they've moved Hmm. and they hold on to the culture that they know from when they live. And so even though their original country for a lack of better term Hmm. or the country they come from may have progressed in the way they look at different factors, they don't progress with that. They sort of hold on to what they know from when they left. Yeah, it's a good theory. And I guess when I hear you say both those things that some Uh, families they blend the culture and then some say lean into the original culture and don't update it really comes back to our earlier point where we were saying you really can't make assumptions and that you really have to listen to the client in front of you right absolutely yeah and everyone's experience migrating itself is so different yes some come here with work some don't you know some come here and really dire circumstances while others have moved here for other reasons and all of those things play a factor into how they influence and interact with the person's identity. Is there anything else interesting that has come out of the systematic review? Another big thing I'm finding I guess is that um, children of cultural um, or cult communities as well is that we tend to think that you know authoritative parenting is the parenting to is the gold standard for parenting basically Mm. and that has come from our understanding of the research so far which has been done in more western countries Um, now authoritative parenting for listeners who don't know what that really means is around you know you kind of have have that autonomy you have that sense of warmth and acceptance and those kinds of things and authoritarian parenting is much more strict in our in how we understand it so far you've got kind of shaming and withdrawal punitive behaviors a little bit more control those kinds of things and we say that authoritative parenting is the one you should go for because that has the most positive 
outcomes for the children. But actually the research that I'm doing is finding that for children of cowed communities, authoritarian parenting also has really positive outcomes because children of cowed communities kind of see the control and the kind of respect for authority and obedience as as a way that their parents are showing love and warmth and so when that's lacking they actually kind of go oh maybe my parents don't love me in a really rudimentary sense um they're not exactly saying that but we're actually finding that authoritarian parenting does work with children of calc parents. Wow, you've just blown my mind. That's amazing because it jars so much. Me being a Caucasian woman, it's like individualism is kind of drilled into the Western Caucasian culture. And so when I hear that, it's like, even me, I'm imagining a fictional scenario where I might have a client and they're sharing with me, I guess, kind of authoritarian practices that the parent is doing. And me as a therapist, I would actually be thinking, oh, this doesn't sound great. And I would categorize it automatically negatively. And that's even before exploring what it means to my client to actually have this parent in their life and what it would be if they did not have these behaviors. It could actually be positive for them. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say, Bronwyn, like when we're working as early career therapists in this industry, it's really important to adopt an approach that's very open and curious um, because the client knows best and they will be able to guide us best on what their background is like, you know, how their culture culture has impacted their development how and how it continues to impact their current circumstances as well. Each person is so individual um, and it's really important for us to take that open and curious approach. And when we do have assumptions and, you know, when we have stereotype, which is really natural, you know, we all do it, um, to be, you know, to be honest about that, to own up to that. And if we have said something to the client that may have come across as dismissive or minimizing or may have kind of across as, oh, this person doesn't understand me, to really own that and go, hey, look, I'm really sorry. Maybe I didn't understand what you were trying to say and give that client the opportunity to correct our assumption and stereotype. Mm, that could be very powerful. So it could be a repair opportunity and really good for the psychologist to actually say like, look, something happened here. My biases got in the way of really connecting with you. I own that. So that could be really good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's so much power in that because A, it humanizes us as therapists, as people who make mistakes as well. But I think also, and you know, a very small example of this is a lot of children growing up um, who've got ethnic names have tried to kind of make their names more anglicized so it's easier for everyone else to say their name, right? And that's a I'm I'm just using that as a very small example to reflect how difficult it can be for someone to stand up and go, hey, you got that wrong. That's not true for me. Um, And so by owning up to that, you're actually creating a really validating environment where you're almost giving this client the permission to go, yeah, that's wrong. Because a lot of the times, if we don't own up to that, they might not do that. They might just go, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like if that's your understanding, 
Yeah. And I guess we want therapy to be a different experience for our clients than the stuff that they get into their day-to-day life. So if they constantly have to anglicize their names and make it easier for other people to pronounce it, we actually want to say in therapy, look, the pronunciation of your name is important and I'm fine with working to make sure that I pronounce it correctly. And it takes a lot of effort to do that. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I made my name easier to pronounce for everyone else um, all through my life. And it was only just before I started my master's where I decided, no, I'm going to reclaim my name. And all these years, there people would say random ways of saying my name. I would just go, yeah, that's fine. That, that, that's how it is. Whereas now I really take the opportunity to go, no, that's not how it is. And this is what my name is. Um, and that's just a very small example of how we can sometimes make our culture smaller so it's easier for others. Yeah. And maybe this comes into like, how can we bring your research into the therapy space? One thing I'm really interested in is you mentioned this finding that I guess, I think it was from your personal experience and that of your friends growing up, but straddling these two identities. Is there a way that you think that we can I guess, explore these identities with clients that you've found effective or that the research tells us is effective? Um, I haven't seen the research on that yet, Bronwyn, so I don't think I'm in a place to comment about that. Um, But in terms of the therapy itself, I think patience is a really important thing when it comes to understanding these different identities that someone might hold um, because they may feel like, you might not understand an aspect of their identity. Sometimes they might come up with something that you've never heard of before. And so just accept it and understand that it's just taken them that time to open up. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Well, Narasha, everything has been so interesting, what you've shared with us, and I'm really pleased to get to know your PhD research. It sounds so valuable, and I'm so glad that somebody is out there actually conducting this. I just want to make sure that we've covered everything that you want to give a voice to. Is there anything that we've left out today that the listeners should definitely know about? I think we've, um, I think we've covered a lot of the things that I would have wanted to cover. Um, I think in probably summarizing some of the key points that come to mind is that we all come with our inherent assumptions and stereotype and biases and that's very natural there's nothing wrong with that but I think when we're working with people from cult backgrounds it's really important to adopt that open and curious approach and be really patient and understanding and provide them with that validating environment to be able to share what's going on with them because A lot of the times they've probably come from invalidating environments, whether that's with family or with friends or in other aspects of their lives. Um, So, yeah, I just think it's really important to make sure that therapy is that validating environment for them. That makes so much sense. And as soon as you say that, I'm like, oh, of course it makes sense to be patient then because if you've been invalidated persistently, you might even say to your psychologist like, oh, no, you won't get it. Or you might not want to tell them things because you've been invalidated before. So that makes patience all the more important um, so that we can show them that we are interested, we do care, and we're not going to respond to them, hopefully, the way that other people have. Absolutely. And if we do make a mistake, we do, we're all human. Yep. We can own up to that. We repair and we take that as a learning opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Niraja, for joining us. It has been a pleasure to have you on about this important topic. And listeners, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.
Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. My mission is to unpack the challenges faced by early career psychologists so they don't have to go through them alone. I need your help to get these episodes out there and there's a bunch of really cool free things you can do to help me. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get the show as soon as I put it out. Also, consider telling a friend and I would be so honoured if you'd share some of our episodes on social media. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.